I may have gotten 20 chicken nuggets and I am regretting my life choices right now. Why do you have no self-control? <laughs> have you met me? Hello, welcome to Ten Cent Takes, the podcast where we struggle out of our straitjackets one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the cybernetic cyclone herself, Jessica Frazier. <laughs> Air noises. <laughs> if you're new to the show, the purpose of our podcast is to look at comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to check out their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And... As always, if you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you could rate or review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods, because that really does help with discoverability. Or you could just tell friends. That also is good. And then, as always, a friendly reminder, we have pulled our content off of Spotify, given how the platform continues to actively promote voices spreading vaccine disinformation. Today, we are going to talk about one of the best worst comics out there, Crazy Man, which is arguably one of the most confusing and offensive comic series to hit store shelves in the 1990s. I agree to both of those statements. <laughs> the look that Jessica is giving me over the video feed right now is, uh, I'm not sure there are words to describe it. <laughs> I almost couldn't find this comic. Like, I wasn't sure where in all of my seven boxes of, yes, that's right, folks, seven boxes of comics I had put it. And so I was looking, 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 and they had gotten flipped backwards and put in there, which is why I wasn't seeing them. But <laughs> it may have been your subconsciousness was, trying to warn uh, you. I think it was, though. That's the thing. <laughs> I think when I put them in there, I was like, do I really want to read these, though? <laughs> I mean, yes I and no. It's, man, it's kind of like, oh, who's that really offensively bad film director? Uwe Ball from which, Germany. Oh, I was like, which one? <laughs> Like, I mean, there's several, but Uwe Ball was the one who basically in the early aughts was making just truly terrible movies all based on video games. Yeah. And they were things that you would watch because they were just train wrecks. And this is the comic book equivalent. It's a train wreck. It's such a train wreck. I have a list. I didn't even bother <laughs> typing it. Let me show you. I have a whole page of handwritten <laughs> notes. I'm, I'm so excited. A whole yeah, page. and the funny thing is, is that when we started this show up, this is one of the first series that I wrote down as I wanted to talk about because I was like, this is the most batshit thing, and it, it's taken us this long to get to this point. So, oh, well, yeah, buckle up, everybody. Yeah, we'll just have to get through it, everyone. Hold tight. <laughs> just know, folks, I've got opinions. <laughs> <laughs> what on this show? No. <laughs> All right. Before we get started, though, let's talk about one cool thing that we have read or watched lately. And I'm going to be talking a lot. So you go first. Oh, sure, sure. So at the suggestion of our good buddy Guido from Dear Watchers, when they were on our Spider-Verse episode, it was suggested to me that I move up in my watch list the show Russian Doll. Yeah. And... Guys, if you want more multiverse content, 
I, check this out. It's it's not exactly like the multiverses we know it in Marvel, but it's a really neat look at the rules of time and how those might bend hypothetically and how humans might act and feel when those rules become more flexible. And it, it mm-hmm. did a lot of both present time jumps as well as time jumps into different time frames in the past and and it was overall a really neat concept. I would definitely recommend that anyone looking for a trippy meta watching experience go check it out. Yeah, I haven't seen the second season, but I really loved the first one. Like Natasha Leone is great in it and it's you know, it's it's that time loop formula that, you know, everybody remembers from Groundhog Day now, but it's a much more New York version of Groundhog Day both in a literal and figurative sense. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes into a totally different direction for the second season, which is really neat. Yeah, I'm excited. I need to watch that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me know what you think when you do. Will do. Well, what about you? What you been reading, watching? (laughs) So much. (laughs) But one of the big things is that we got onto our first press list the last week. So that's been a lot of fun. And that is how I learned about this new series that is launching this week i believe so it'll be about mm, three weeks from recording give or take but it's a new series from archaea and it's called flavor girls it's written and illustrated by and i apologize if i butcher your name i'm not sure if i'm getting this right Luik locatelli kornsky and again apologies if i got that even remotely wrong i tried and it's colored by eros de santiago And the basic idea is that humanity is attacked by these mysterious aliens who appear in a like a planet that's shaped like a head and it's orbiting Earth. And then a decade after they initially attack, the planet is still orbiting us and humanity has figured out defenses and everything. And this young woman named Sarah is chosen by something called the Mother Tree to be the newest member of the Flavor Girls, who are this like group of magical defenders of the earth so at its core it's like a magical girl comic a la sailor moon and in fact sarah's costume for her flavor girl persona is very much an homage to sailor moon but you know the first issue feels like it's spinning out this pretty fun and relatively unique story and the art is like absolutely gorgeous it's this mix of painterly colors and a manga kind of style that generally audiences aren't going to be used to and the comic itself is like really sweet and it's geared towards an all ages audience. So I'm going to see if I can pick it up and get a copy for my stepdaughter. That sounds great. Yeah. It was a real pleasant surprise. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Well, are you ready to talk about crazy man? I'm shaking my head, but I feel like (laughs) we have to get there eventually. So let's just giddy up and go, I suppose. (laughs) All right, let's go. Okay, before we start talking about Crazy Man itself, we have to talk about Continuity Comics and Neil Adams. So Continuity Comics was formed by Neil Adams in 1984. And how familiar are you with Neil Adams? I'm curious. Have you ever heard that name before? The name sounds familiar, but I really was trying to figure out why. Okay, so Neil Adams died earlier this year. He was like 80, but he was one of those artists who can only be described as iconic. And he'd been with the industry, honestly, longer than most of the artists that are still around. He'd been inducted into Halls of Fame for the Eisner, Harvey, and Inkwell Awards over the years. 
And Adams himself started working as a newspaper comic artist in the late 50s after he failed to secure some freelance work at DC. And then he was able to get into comics later in the 60s working on war and horror comics for, you guessed it, DC. His art style, like which he had actually honed in advertising and doing serious comic strips, you know, serious and air quotes, was really unique at the time because it was almost photorealistic. And then his signature characters were like Batman, the Spectre, Dead Man, Green Arrow, and Green Lantern. And it's widely acknowledged that his run on Batman alongside writer Dennis O'Neill helped revitalize the character and reestablished that dark brooding vibe after the success of the 60s TV show, you know, because the TV show had made the character real campy. And there's a really cool book called DC Comics Year by Year, a visual chronicle by Alan Cowsill and Alex Irvine. And if you look through it, Adams and O'Neill's work basically appears all the way through the entire 1970s section. And it actually credits their effect on Batman. Artist Neil Adams and writer Dennis O'Neill rescued Batman from the cozy, campy cul-de-sac he had been consigned to in the 1960s and returned the Dark Knight to his roots as a haunted crime fighter. The cover of their first collaboration, The Secret of the Waiting Graves, was typical of Adams's edgy, spooky style. Yeah, and if you actually take a look at this cover, which I've included a link to, you can see how the art feels like something out of almost one of those kind of campy horror comics from, you know, the sixties on. Yes, it does. I mean, it has like an owl and like a lady with like a very Elvira, like me, yeah. Frankenstein's bride. Kind of I think a vibe. her last name and is like, like is, is Morte or Morto. It's one of the other. It's, oh, it's amazing. It's like, it's, it's very obvious if you read the story that like she and her husband are the bad guys from the moment you meet them. They're just, full-on camp gothic (laughs) amazing and he looks horrified which the horror on his face along with his like abs that are just like perfectly positioned right there chef's kiss yeah he he put it really well one time in an interview where he described superheroes as naked people with lines drawn on their bodies and i was like that's actually a, a pretty fair way to describe it for the most part that is true. Yes. Why bother having to figure out how to draw fabric when you yeah, don't need right? to? Well, yeah. And so, likewise, Adams's work on the X-Men is pretty widely acclaimed, even though it feels like it's been overshadowed now by the run from Chris Claremont and John Byrne. But the one that's really kind of the standout of all of this is his Green Lantern Green Arrow run with Dennis O'Neill. They made these kind of goofy characters at the time very focused on relevant social commentary. and. Actually, one of the biggest and most controversial storylines at the time was the one where Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy was turned into a heroin addict. And it was really well received critically, but it didn't sell all that great. There's a comic historian named Ron Goulart who covered this in his book, Ron Goulart's Great History of Comic Books. These angry issues deal with racism, overpopulation, pollution, and drug addiction. The drug abuse problem was dramatized in an unusual and unprecedented way by showing Green Arrow's heretofore clean-cut boy companion Speedy turning into a heroin addict. All this endeared DC to the dedicated college readers of the period and won awards for both artist and writer. 
Sales, however, weren't especially influenced by the praise, and by 1973, the crusading had ceased. I remember dropping in on editor Julius Schwartz about this time and asking him how Relevance was doing. Relevance is dead, he informed me, not too cheerfully. (laughs) Yeah. So, Adams opened his own full-service production studio called Continuity Studios in the late 1970s with this artist and editor, Dick Giordano, who we've talked about on other episodes. And they did everything from storyboards to test commercials to motion capture work. And then in 84, Adams added to this and basically started up an independent comics publisher called Continuity Comics. And from what I understand, Adams really just wanted to publish his own stuff and not have to pay someone else to get it out there. He wanted to remove the middleman. And most of Continuity's books were actually focused on superheroes that Adams had created or co-created. But You know, they also did stuff like a series called Echo of Future Past, which was an anthology series, which features the first appearance of Bucky O'Hare, if you remember that name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bucky O'Hare created by, (laughs) he was created by Larry Hama, who is the guy who wrote and illustrated a lot of the original Marvel G.I. Joe series and is credited with actually having created most of the original lore for G.I. Joe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they also did licensed stuff like Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. Wikipedia also has an entry stating that they did a Skeleton Warriors comic based on the animated series from the early 90s, but I couldn't confirm that. Adams himself might have done some concept art, though, based on some of the images I found, but it's, you know, hard to confirm or deny. But a lot of the main characters for Continuity's books were designed by Adams as part of something he did called the New Heroes Portfolio in 1979. So if you actually look at these two images from the New Heroes Portfolio, you'll see that Crazy Man is in the lineup. Oh yeah, there he is, looking just as wild. I personally like the child with large shoes, although you know how I feel about children fighting crime. (laughs) Yeah, so that would be Toy Boy who also got his own comic and is kind of like a weird mashup of Richie Rich and Tom Swift. Toy Boy has such a different connotation these days. I know. (laughs) Yeah. And then Miss Mystic, I believe, is in there too. Let's see. Let's hold on. Mm. Yeah. So Miss Mystic is the one who's in the middle. She was another popular character that Adams co-created and gave a series to. The other two guys in the middle, I think one of them is called Titan or Shaman, I can't remember which. And then the guy on the right is called King Tut. And I don't think he ever got his comic, but I found the art for it, and it credits him as the man out of future past. So, you know, clearly Adams had these ideas that he was recycling. (laughs) (laughs) I do, however, really dig, this is my one thing, is that I do dig King Tut's outfit the most, because I love that he's got a slight bell bottom. He's just very... He's very end of 1970s. Amazing. I don't know a lot about that character, but it's funny because you look at him and he looks like Bruce Lee. He does a little bit. Yeah. He looks like Bruce Lee meets Spock. Yes. Yeah. And then the other funny thing is that Crazy Man on the main image for this in the lineup looks like a zombie. He really does. If you didn't know who that was, you would think that it was a zombie character. Yeah. 
Like, he looks like his face is bleeding, and that's probably not what's supposed to be happening, but that's how it looks. And his hair is lighter than that. Like, Yeah. Well, and then take a look at the other image. Yeah. Yeah, like, this one looks closer to the comic character. Like, it looks like his hair is intended to be lighter in this one. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know. His shit's all torn up again. Like, he hulked out or something. Like, yeah. That's not what this character does. No, it's not. Yeah, and we'll get back to that in a sec. But there were also several creator-owned books that were under the continuity imprint, which is actually in keeping with Adam's general vibe. He was a really big creator rights advocate, and he was one of the main people that helped secure both a pension and recognition for the Superman creators, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And like, it's one of those things where you know we talk about supporting artists and giving them the recognition and financial support that they deserve a lot on the show. And so I just wanted to note that as well. So I just want to call out this entry from the Wikipedia page about the Superman copyright lawsuits that Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster had filed. In 1975, Warner Brothers announced the production of a Superman film to be directed by Richard Donner. Siegel publicly condemned the project and drew attention to his poverty and the apathy of DC Comics. He found sympathizers such as Neil Adams and Jerry Robinson, who waged a public relations campaign for better treatment of comic creators in general. In order to avoid bad press, Warner Brothers agreed to give Siegel and Schuster a yearly stipend, medical benefits, and credit their names in all future Superman stories, in exchange for no longer contesting ownership of Superman. The stipend was initially $20,000, but rose over the years. Sometimes the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's all money, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and that, you know, $20,000 doesn't sound like a lot now, but back then that was a, that was close to $100,000 worth of, like, buying power. So, you know, that was not totally. bad. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were owed a lot more, in my opinion, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. So Continuity was an indie comic imprint mainly focused on telling original, edgy superhero stories that often starred characters that Adams had come up with several years prior. And Crazy Man launched right around the peak of Continuity's commercial success in 1992. There doesn't seem to be much documentation about this series. So Robin Guido from Dear Watchers, hashtag podcast BFFs, alerted me to the Overstreet comic book price guide to lost universes which just came out in march and basically it's both a price guide and an explainer to what are called dead universes which are comic imprints and continuities that are no longer around for whatever reason and continuity is one of the imprints featured in this and adams himself provided the following info about the main lineup of the characters the publisher focused on these were new characters i sort of created off the top of my head and did them in the new heroes portfolio never with the thought in mind of necessarily taking them any further. Things evolve. The process moves forward, and the things you did suddenly become something else. I tend to create things with lies of their own. I don't start off saying this is simply this. I create what it's all about. Even when I did those portfolio pieces, I wrote little histories, when they came from what they're all about. I can't just draw a picture. It has to have history. So essentially, that's what happened. So special thanks to Mike from Multiverse of Badness. If you have not listened to Multiverse of Badness and you like our show, we are very thoroughly in the same Venn diagram miasma. They do a weekly show where they look at one very strange or silly issue at a time or a terrible character that has come about in comic books. And it's 
a lot of fun. We went on there a couple of months ago and had a blast. We're going to have them on to talk about another Neil Adams creation, but we're going to leave it at that. Please check them out. We'll drop a link to them in the show notes too. Yeah, the funny thing is that there doesn't seem to be much documentation about this series. That Lost Universes book that I mentioned a little while ago doesn't even include it amongst the continuity titles, but that particular imprint section is also really incomplete and it's missing a ton of the series and issues they published. Crazy Man is actually like two different short-lived comic series. The first launched in 1992 and ran for three issues, while the second series came out a year later in 93 and ran for four. I've seen a couple of people referring to it as this mini-series that was then leading into an ongoing series, but it's not something I can confirm. So all we're going to say is that there were two series. And the other thing is that Continuity had multiple series with different volumes around this era, and they were leaning really hard into the collector's market. So I kind of have to wonder if they weren't trying to tap into that money by just establishing new volumes and providing people with a new number one issue to pick up. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, totally. Seeing what kind of stuck. Yeah. Okay. And then again, before we go any further, I need to go down one more rabbit hole and talk about something else. So everything about this comic feels like a 1970s spy story. And if you look at the art and the character designs, it very much feels like something from the late 70s or early 80s most of the time. Like there's a lot of three-piece suits. The cars are really boxy. Like even the technology that's shown to be advanced, like it feels very dated aesthetically like and not just from like the 90s it feels like from an era that's earlier like computers that take up walls it did it just like was a black screen on one of them with just green like that typeface lettering Mm -hmm. that only had one font and i was like what year is this supposed to be yeah (laughs) but you know that makes sense since crazy man was initially created in the late 1970s and then on top of that this was right around the time that mental illness was like getting real hot in terms of media representation. So there was a book in 1974 called Sybil that Sarah actually alerted me to that documents the treatment of a woman who supposedly suffers from multiple personality disorder. And it would now be classified as dissociative identity disorder. And the book was a runaway success. And it doesn't matter that Sybil has been widely criticized by experts and it was revealed to not actually be very legit. It's kind of like the satanic panic, you know, where it's, it's one of those salacious stories that the public just gobbled up and the book sold millions of copies around the world. It got made into a TV movie, both in 1976 and then in 2007. And it's also been credited as leading to a dramatic increase in diagnoses of dissociative identity disorders by the late 1970s and early eighties. And then on top of that, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was released as a movie in 1975, and it was a raging success. Like, it earned $163 million at the box office, which is the equivalent of $815 million today, and it dominated the Oscars. Yeah, like, that's a big thing. You know, and seeing as how the New Heroes portfolio came out in 1979, it's hard to imagine that Crazy Man wasn't influenced by Sybil's ripple effect. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So. Now that we've got all the background out of the way, and before we start actively talking about the series, I've largely been withholding talking to you about this offline before we recorded. Were you as confused by the first series as I was? Because it always felt like we were sort of starting in the middle of a story and then ending on a kind of cliffhanger that never really felt like it was like resolved. 
Yeah. And yes, yes. First, first and foremost, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> a thousand times. Yes. But I was thinking about this. If I were a writer and I maybe wanted to also give the reader the impression that they were going on this mental jump, this time jump, like the character might experience, why don't we start them in the middle of the experience? Mm. And I, I wondered if it was intentional. It could just be lazy writing. I think it may have been the latter. And we'll talk about that later on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and maybe that's just me trying to give the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So I, we'll return to this later on, I should say. One of the big things that continuity was notorious for was they would put out these comics that had great art and then editorially they were a mess they were really poorly written they didn't really make a lot of sense so you know well that tracks with this series then yeah i mean it's one of those things where you know going from issue to issue it doesn't feel like anyone really had any idea about what they were doing and you know a while ago i talked about how i had discovered cyberrad which was this kind of punk rock robot adventure story that continuity did around the same time and the art is fantastic but it's one of those things where it's kind of like an episode of dragon ball z where there's not a lot of plot it's just a giant fight scene and and you can tell that these people were sitting there and they're like i don't know what we're gonna do i know we'll just move to a new location and we'll have another combat sequence and then we'll leave it on a cliffhanger (laughs) and go from there exactly oh goodness yeah crazy man follows Daniel Brody, who is a young man of indeterminate age, who, when he is introduced, he is clearly unhoused and suffering from mental health issues of, again, an undiagnosed variety. But he also displays abilities like super strength and speed and durability and regeneration. But these powers manifest only when he's under extreme emotional duress and he's got like zero self control when he's in that state at first glance it's almost like he's a low rent version of the hulk right yeah i could see it that way yeah and so early on he like interrupts some sort of kind of like spy assassination and then he's recruited into this group called the acre corp by the mysterious dr acre and we never really get a full explanation on like what the purpose of their organization is or what they're really trying to do. It's just, it's very cloak and dagger. You could tell it's just bad corporation shit. Yeah. Yeah. Where like even Dr. Aker is like hinted at as being like, you know, mildly nefarious for using Danny, you know, to further his own ends. But then he ends up pairing Danny with his daughter, Christine, and then their adventures definitely feel like it's meant to be sort of one of those odd couple scenarios where she's this really capable secret agent and then he's like i don't know what would would we call him a himbo because like yeah he's definitely only there for the muscle like i mean well and he's so naive about just the world and shows no common sense but then he also has that random moment where he figures out how to track all of their agents based on unique brainwave patterns and then writes a program into the computer that will like it's do that so inconsistent i like forgot that happened yeah no it's normally wild not that way yeah yeah it makes no sense and then he's like oh yeah like i just wrote this program in you know two hours that'll not only track where our agents are worldwide but it'll also allow us to ring any phone that they happen to be near and i was like that's 
not how computers work at all. Who wrote this? Like, <laughs> who's responsible for this? Come outside. I just want to talk. Someone who's never touched a computer. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the other thing is that he routinely ends up harming Christine by accident, you know, before he inadvertently saves the day when he rages out. But, you know, early on, he straight up plucks out her right eye by accident in the first issue. Yeah. Like he. Yeah. You know, and then like he has a number of moments where he ends up like, you know, hitting her or headbutting her or just hurting her by accident when she's trying to calm him down or restrain him. And then he actually like tries to pluck mm. out her cybernetic eye that has replaced the one that he removed in the second volume because he thinks she's an imposter. It reads like they were trying to make this all feel like, you know, wacky hijinks. And it's just it's terrible. It's ass. Yeah, no, it was pretty wild. I was like, wait, what do you mean she lost her goddamn eye? Like, mm -hmm. just, come on. Yeah, like, it was so unnecessary. He just like his arms were just going all wild. Yeah. And I was like, I, I very truly don't understand what like a that escalated very quickly and be like, why? <laughs> like, what yeah. was the purpose? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't know, man. But yeah, so the first series shows Danny getting recruited into the agency, and then he's sent on a series of one-off adventures that, A, don't really make a lot of sense, and B, each issue has him visiting different countries, and then he engages in some inept, super-powered spycraft. And the first issue, honestly, to me, feels like it's the most offensive. Like, it, it feels really white savory and also extremely racist in some of the, the art. Yeah, I will agree with you there. Because Danny gets sent to rescue Christine while she is undercover in a fictitious African country. And they're there to basically take down this corrupt and illegitimate leader who goes by the name Big Dada. Yeah. And everything about how they portray this country feels like something someone would have come up if they were like hey let's take north korea and then set it in africa and all they did for research on africa was they watched coming to america yeah no i mean yeah i would agree with that it was heinous there was this one page where they showed like this country literally had like gated like commute like and i mean like chicken wire gated mm -hmm. like communities where these people were in really bad condition and i just was like what the fuck am i looking at right now well, like what am i looking at right now like everyone was covered in flies i was like this is like the worst stereotypically racist shit i've ever seen yeah like, and it was gross the context is that the new leader has turned something like 80 percent of his country into a game preserve and so he has taken these nomadic tribes people and basically force them into they're not even reservations they're not quite death camps but they're like real close to it because then he stages an attempted genocide on them using his soldiers dressed up as rebels everything about it yeah. is beyond offensive like and then later on he holds a press conference where his outfit for the press is like it's like a visor <laughs> It's like a visor, a pair of sunglasses, and then he's got a top hat, and then he has a tuxedo coat with tails, but it's got like <laughs> leopard spots. It's real bad. Like, it's real bad. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it was not it. Yep. And then, I don't know, the second issue involves Danny. I don't know, he he goes up against some weird cult in South America that's being led by a con Which? artist named like Tex Bondo or something like that. And he's there to rescue a, I don't know, a scientist or a psychiatrist who could hopefully assist him with his mental health problems. But that guy refuses to help Danny because at the end, Danny rages out and throws the bad guy into a plane propeller. And I don't know. Yep. <laughs> and then the third issue has Acre getting kidnapped from a bank by a bunch of guys who are secretly Middle Eastern terrorists. And then they have to go to the Middle East to rescue him. And it's also, again, very offensive, but it's not quite as egregiously offensive as before. None of it's good, folks. None of it's good. It's all three have their their fun little colonizer vibes, racist added. Yeah, it's just the yeah. 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 And then that's the end of the first volume. And the second volume picks up, you know, continuing the story of Danny. It's not reestablishing it. And the first issue is why I wanted to talk about this series, because it is a die cut issue where it is cut in the shape of Danny's head while he is getting like basically it's it's implied that he's being forced into a straitjacket and he's being told that he's an inmate and he's not a person and <laughs> this this is clearly a decision they made after they had produced the comic because some of the text on the ads is cut into it doesn't affect the comic itself because you know they've got the margins and everything but some of the other pages the text is actually like cut out by the shape of the head. It's really entertaining. And this is why I wanted to so talk about silly. this originally. I was like, this is the dumbest gimmick I have ever seen. And it's what, what a gateway into, <laughs> into one of the most offensive things I've ever read. So funny. But yeah, yeah I, it's, it's ridiculous. I don't, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't exactly sure what we were getting into other than I knew it was going to be pretty offensive from a mental health standpoint, but the rest <laughs> of it was like a one, two punch. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the first two issues of the second series are Danny becomes fascinated by a TV show that is very clearly meant to be the British 60s TV show called The Prisoner, which in this series is called The Inmate. And I'm guessing it's because continuity couldn't get the rights to refer to it outright because DC had just oh, wow. published a miniseries that acted as a sequel to the show in 1988. So my guess is that the rights were tied up there. But yeah, Danny, like, I don't know, he like basically forces Christine to fly him to where they're filming the show in the Bermuda Triangle and then he winds up in his own version of it and then at the end of the second issue I mean it feels like one of those things where it's like this kid breathlessly making up a story of just and then and then and then because it keeps on changing <laughs> it keeps on changing all the way through and then it ends with oh it turns out it was all aliens and then and then it was all a dream <laughs> it's like okay Ugh. um right Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. And then it was all a dream that Danny came up with while he fell asleep watching The Inmate. And then finally, issues three and four are part of this 
crossover event that continuity was in the middle of at the time called the rise of magic. And Danny winds up confronting a demon who stole some noble doctor's soul and then traps the demon in his head because he, you know, cause he's crazy. And, and then gets the pieces of the doctor's soul back from various people that the demon had split it up with. And I don't know. <laughs> it just, it's, it's also weird. Okay. It's very weird because like the inner cover of these issues, they have the art from the cover. And then the text for it is saying, Oh, we're not actually doing the rise of magic with crazy man yet, but you know, we just put this art together. It's, it's very clear that this was like placeholder art that they had put in. And then somehow nobody Jeez. was giving any oversight and it just went to the printer because I'm like, this is, oh my goodness this gracious. is appearing in, I'm like, uh, like I was sitting there reading it and I'm like, this is appearing in issues that are part of the rise of magic crossover. Like, like, and it happens not once, but it happens twice. Oh my gosh. Like, and you know, and the other thing is like on the bottom of those pages, it has the continuity comics logo and then it has something about like, oh, like we're being told that kids don't know what continuity means. Do you think we should change our name? And I'm just sitting there going, what is going on? Like, good Lord. It is like, wild. Just, oh, man. that Like, wow. So much to unpack with that. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was your uh, what was your overall thought for these two series? I have a list. <laughs> Let me pull out my legit paper because I could not, I was, I was, this had to be a handwriting exercise. Okay. So first and foremost, it is riddled with ableist language and assumptions. Mm -hmm. And there are legit slurs. They use the R word in the first issue in very big, bold letters. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, that was. Which. Ugh. I mean, at the time, like I remember kids on the schoolyard hurling that around and, you know, and it being much more popular, but still, it's not great. But still, yeah. His inability to control himself perpetuates bad stereotypes about folks with mental illnesses mm -hmm. and also perpetuates other stereotypes about like the physical depictions of him like drooling uncontrollably. Yeah. Those types of things. It's like, okay, what there was a whole scene where he was supposed to be with other what what I assume were mental health patients. Mm -hmm. They were all in a room. They were all just kind of like chained there, which was already like, okay, what the fuck, first of all. Yeah. And they were just depicted in the most disgusting ways. And I just was like, you're not even treating these people like people. You're treating them like like some monster that you're you're creating. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that was supposed to be a nightmare or a flashback. But regardless, it's really not good. Yeah. So it just it wasn't great. And literally, like they did treat him like he was really stupid. And I think that's another stereotype that we really like to portray people with disabilities as not being intelligent. And that's, that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. And there were so many points where people were literally like, you're disabled and don't know any better. So we're going to take advantage of you. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just, that was gross. So, and then, you know, 
to what you said about it didn't really, the time jumps didn't really make a lot of sense and the plot trajectories didn't make a lot of sense. And he kind of just ended up in weird places and we were supposed to just go with it. So it mm-hmm. just, you know, yeah. Yeah. I have been letting it marinate for a while in my head and I'm trying to still figure out, I can't figure out a reaction more succinct than what the fuck? Like, Everything about right. this comic just made me keep on doing double takes. No, that's exactly it. I, I seriously, there were times where I would just stare at the page and be like, that's not what is really happening, right? I, oh, yes, it is. Okay, I'm going to go make myself some chicken nuggets because I need self-comfort. Yeah, it's real bad. Like, originally when I started this, I was expecting this to be like just kind of weird and funny. And it's still at times weird and funny, but in a very different way where... It's just, it's like a train wreck that you can't stop watching in slow motion. And yeah, it's (laughs) like reading this comic. It's like going to McDonald's and just ordering all the worst things for you and eating it and knowing that you're just going to hate yourself later on. But here you are. But here I am already making plans to go get fast food after we finish this because you've given me the idea. (sighs) I'm not sorry. it's fine don't be it it probably would have happened anyway yeah it's fair did you think that one volume was better than the other or do you think they're both kind of equally bad in different ways i mean i feel like we should probably rephrase the question which is there was a volume that was worse Mm -hmm. okay which one was that i would say that the first one it's just i feel like that was the most heinous as far as like racism and just like slurs and portrayal i mean i think it was that was the worst and that's where they had the r word you know so i gotta say i don't think i've seen art that was this overtly racist since those debbie does dallas comics that we read where people of color were drawn very obviously different from white characters Hmm. yeah yeah agreed Agreed. Like, there are black characters who are drawn pretty egregiously in that. And then also, there's a Middle Eastern terrorist in Debbie Does Dallas who is really bad. Like, like that one's worse, but it's, mm. you know, the fact that we're having this discussion says a lot, I think, about Crazy Man. Yeah. Yeah. Exa- yeah, the fact that it's on that level. Yeah. For sure. Like, it's it, it doesn't pass that bar, but it belongs in the same sentence, which I think just says everything about it. On that vein, what did you think was the most offensive moment in Crazy Man? Because we have a whole buffet to choose from. There's a whole buffet, yeah. I mean, this was a hard one. I initially wrote one thing, but it's kind of tied. And I would say that the portrayal of that African country just overall, Mm -hmm. just all the way around, big no-no. Yeah. Big did not like. That's incredibly offensive. I would say for me, the secondary one was the use of the R word in such... Mm -hmm a big manner i mean it wasn't even like it was just in passing it was like they made it a point well, to make those letters bold and the font larger well, when they said that specific word it was a choice that they made yeah and that choice did not age well no yeah i mean i think the first issue in general is the most offensive moment for the entire series <laughs> yeah i would i would say I would like the, say. the one that i keep on going back to is that press conference where i'm just like this feels insane and if they'd had any kind of like you know editorial oversight 
with, you know, with someone going, hey, this feels mildly racist. I don't think it would have gotten to the press, but for whatever reason, it got there and this is what we have now. So, mm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But yeah. Well, in 1994, during that Rise of Magic crossover that was going on, continuity folded? Just stopped publishing? It's a little unclear. What I can say for sure is there was a lot of drama at the publisher around then. Adams was actually getting sued for $20 million by this artist named Michael Netzer over the IP of Miss Mystic. He was in some sort of legal conflict with Dan Barry, who was the artist who was working on Crazy Man, I believe. I haven't been able to track down anything more than a headline about this, so I don't know the specifics. And then 1993 was the year that the comics boom really ended and publishers were folding like crazy as the industry imploded. And if you want to learn more about what was going on at that time, check out episode 20, where we discussed Deathmate, the crossover between Image Comics and Valiant, with comic book couples counseling. But as I said earlier, continuity books were notorious for shipping late, for having poor editorial oversight, and relying more on gimmicks than quality storytelling to sell books. I've been picking up a lot of the continuity books over the last couple of years, and I love these things because they're such 90s trash. Like, at one point, they were using Tyvek plastic to create indestructible, you know, in air quotes. No. Yeah, they were using Tyvek <sighs> to create indestructible covers. And they also did embossed covers, which, I mean, a bunch of the Crazy Man issues are embossed. But they had holographic stickers. They had glow-in-the-dark covers. They did the die-cut cover, like we talked about earlier. They had an issue with that thermographic ink on the cover, which is like, it's like that issue of Bloodstrike that you oh, picked you up for me. That shit. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, you love it. And apparently everybody talks about, they're like, yeah, it came with this thermographic ink that you're supposed to like rub and find out who the villain of this issue is. It doesn't work. Like there was one blog post I found <laughs> where someone was like, doesn't. I left a pile of warm laundry on top just to see if it would work. And no, it doesn't. It's just this giant orange blob and it's terrible. So just, you know, oh, no, there's even an issue where they had like, one of those magic eye style graphics on it. You remember those? Nice. Yeah. Yes, I do. I was great at those. Yeah, I was awful at them. I had one that I never solved. Oh, no. And it always made me so mad because people would be like, oh, it's a, a catalog. And I'm like, God damn it. Like, they, would just, they would just come in and look at it for five seconds. I'm like, I hate all of you. Here's the thing. What I can tell about you is that you probably weren't relaxing your eyes enough because your ability to relax, like me, I don't know why I was able to do this. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you have to be able to relax the muscles in your body, though. <laughs> yeah, and that's not me. But yeah, I mean, the thing about gimmicks is that they're always geared towards getting collectors to spend as much money as you can in the short term and not towards establishing a passionate fan base that will keep on coming back. Mm -hmm. You know, so continuity books for a while were selling gangbusters, but then when the industry imploded, there wasn't enough of a dedicated mm -hmm. fan base to keep it going. So after this, most of continuity's creator-owned comics vanished, though a couple of them transferred over to Windjammer, which was an imprint under the Valiant Comics umbrella, after they were purchased by video game publisher Acclaim. But none of those books lasted for very long, and Crazy Man wasn't part of that group. So, yeah. Probably for the best. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but 
Continuity Comics was dead. Long live Continuity Studios. They were apparently still operating pretty recently. I'm not sure if it was up to the point of Adam's death a couple of months ago, but the website's copyright is March 2015. I know he was still operating out of the Continuity offices. Based on what I understand, Continuity and Adam's, they sort of merged in terms of business operations. It feels kind of murky, and I don't have really a good insight into this, though. So take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. Adam's did give an interview to Comic Book Resources in 2016 where he admitted that he was considering publishing comics again, but nothing came of that. So, Mm. yeah. And then it turns out most of the continuity books weren't collected into trades or anything like that, but they're generally pretty easy to find. I mean, I think I spent a total of 15 bucks across the internet tracking down these issues of Crazy Man. Yeah, they weren't that expensive. No, they're easy to find and... I mean, there's better ones to buy. I'm going to be honest. There are better issues to buy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They live in my collection now, but that's for the love of this show. (laughs) We jump on these grenades. We do. But yeah, before we move on and leave Danny behind, do you have any final thoughts? Okay, so my last thought was that I did not like how Christine is all hard on herself. That, like, at one point she has this line where she was like, oh, no, I've made him a murderer. And it's like, girl, you do not get credit for that. No. Like, he'd he been killing people before you met him. Like, yeah. <laughs> like you don't get you don't get to take that on. Shockingly, That's not yours to own. <laughs> shockingly, this is not a comic that passes the Bechdel test. Oh, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> certainly does not certainly does not i mean not even a little bit not even at all no christine was uh, like she was barely a prop like throughout most of this she was just there to, to, to like react to danny like that's that's all she was basically yeah i she made some comment about being a feminist at one point and i just started cackling because i was like i have no idea what you're talking about right now <laughs> Well, and that was the point in time when feminism was still kind of a dirty word in the public discourse. I don't know. See, they were trying to do Christine dirty after all. I think, yeah. No, I completely agree. And I mean, you know, I I keep on thinking about mental health issues and how they're often portrayed in ways that aren't great. Like, you know, Kate Beckinsale just had a movie come out called Jolt where she has, I don't know, she's like powered she's like powered in quotes by intermittent explosive disorder and she's like this badass vigilante or you know like how people on the autism spectrum are often portrayed as savants like so if you think i'm exaggerating things like it's still going on like look at there's the big bang theory which you know was massively popular yeah. there's yep. the good doctor which is like i think on its yep. fifth season i don't know that's yeah Well, even when they try to portray like Love on the Spectrum, for example, which is another reality TV show, they do it in such a way to make it really cringy. And, you know, they have the option of how they're going to be portraying people. And they they add these extra little awkward silences in between stuff and Mm -hmm. little cutesy music. And it's like it's done in a way that feels very like infantilizing. Yeah, and I mean, the thing about mental health and how it's portrayed 
in media a lot of times, it feels like they're basically saying you are not worth anything if you have these issues, unless there is something extraordinary making up for it, you know, and it's gross. Mm hmm. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, well, let's move on to brain wrinkles and leave the world of continuity comics behind. How does that sound? No, let's get the fuck out of here. As I like <laughs> stomp down the door, kick open the door. In your Doc Martens. In my Doc Martens. Absolutely. Oh, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are now at the point of brain wrinkles, which is that part of the show where we talk about something that is comics or comics adjacent that has just been sitting in our head lately. So I've been talking for a bit, so I'm going to rehydrate a little bit. I'll let you go first. Yeah, sounds good. I've been thinking about hair and how in hair, specifically in illustration and animation mm. and how it's pretty lazy that hair is kind of universally just portrayed as straight and flowing. And I feel like that's gotten better in the last few years. But I mean, as I was, you know, reading any comics, it just feels like all of the characters are portrayed with this kind of glossy, shiny mm -hmm. hair and other types of hair are not really given the same type of spotlight. Yeah. And I've seen some really cool things recently, like different brushes that you can use when you're doing like graphic design that actually have different styles of different types of natural hair. So you don't necessarily have to do just you know, the basic hair, if you don't feel comfortable, you can kind of just pick and choose these brushes that you can download. And I don't know how this works. So it probably is like a pay to play kind of download system. But, but it is cool to think about the idea of, okay, let's utilize something that's different than our standard, like just white person hair, like I'm kind yeah. of tired of seeing it. So yeah. Yeah. So what about you? I have been thinking about legacies this is because i picked up a copy of buffy the last vampire slayer which it was kind of like the last ronin but set in the buffy verse so okay yeah like it's the same kind of story it's set in this dystopian future where the heroes lost and the monsters won and there's an older buffy who winds up finding herself on one last quest and you know meeting up with a bunch of her friends and you know making new allies along the way it's really good, actually. I really liked it a lot, and they've got it out in trade. Like, if you were at all into the show, highly recommended. But what's interesting is that Joss Whedon's name isn't anywhere on the cover. And it's noted on the title page that, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer was created by Whedon, but his credits otherwise are pretty minimal. And it made me start thinking about popular properties and how we consume them if they're using elements created by problematic creators who have been since left behind. So like case in point, Moon Knight, mm. the TV show, had a bunch of character and costume designs that first appeared during Warren Ellis's run on the comic back in like 2014 or so. And likewise, he was the main writer and co-executive producer for the Castlevania animated series on Netflix. But then he wound up getting outed as like a major creep a couple of years ago. And, you know, he hasn't been included in the new spinoff show for Netflix that's being worked on. And likewise, the stuff that he did for Marvel was presumably work for hire. So 
you know, consuming it isn't going to net him any extra revenue or there's the case of Minecraft, yeah. which my stepson and his friends play all the time. And, you know, it's owned by Microsoft now. Mojang's founder, Notch, you know, he got a huge one-time payout, but like he doesn't get any royalties and he's come out as being a really toxic person and Microsoft's pretty much scrubbed his presence from everything except for the game's credits. But as opposed to J.K. Rowling, who you know, still owns the rights to this stuff and is actively profiting from any time someone buys something associated with that brand. This is stuff where I don't think these people are getting residuals because I don't think they own any of the rights. Like Disney at this point owns Buffy because it was owned. Well, that's good because I about hissed when you said her name. <laughs> but yeah, it it's just this very philosophical question which is if something is created by a jerk but consuming that thing doesn't net the money is it morally okay to buy it mm. i mean i think if it doesn't net them any money yeah i don't know it's just i don't think it's a question with an easy answer just something that's been rattling around my head for the last 48 hours or so no that's that's a rattle Quite a rattle. <laughs> it's a little it's a little bit deeper than what we normally have at the end of the show. <laughs> right. But yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you as always for spending your time with us. And we will be back in two weeks. Jessica is going to be leading that episode. And until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Ten Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, Please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is tencenttakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.